Good day and welcome to the Reconsidering Russia podcast. I am your host, Pietro Shakarian, and that was a very jazzy rendition of the Russian romance Ochichornia by Louis Armstrong, a sort of a New Orleans twist on an old Russian favorite. And it's good to be back after a somewhat lengthy hiatus. When I last did this podcast, it was way back in 2015 when I was still a master's student in Russian studies at the University of Michigan in scenic Ann Arbor. Now I am at the Ohio State University, Michigan's arch rival, as all you Midwest college football fans well know. I am enrolled in the PhD program in history here at OSU with a focus on Russia and the former Soviet Union. So today I have a very fascinating guest, Sergei Makidonov, a celebrated Russian scholar of the Caucasus. He earned his PhD in history at the Rostov-on-Don State University, and he is now an associate professor at the Russian State University in Moscow. I've actually known Sergei for quite some time. I remember coming across his name many times when I first began researching the history and politics of Russia and the Caucasus in high school and then in undergrad. However, I really only got to know Sergei personally in the last few years due to the fact that we've both contributed frequently to the online news source Russia Directs. So we really got to kind of know each other from this uh, experience. I want to note that my interview with Sergei is partially autobiographical in the sense that we discuss his own experiences with the history of Russia and the Caucasus as they unfolded, in addition to the analyses of developments in the Caucasus today. So this podcast was recorded from the Whisper uh, Audio Studio, Whisper Room Audio Studio, I should say, at the Prior Health uh, Sciences Library at OSU. And so without further ado, I give you my interview with Sergey. So Sergey, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure having you here. It's also a pleasure for me to share my views, insights on the Caucasus and some other topics. So Sergey, first and foremost, what prompted your interest in the Caucasus? I suppose it uh, has been kind of combination of reasons uh, prompting my interest uh, to the Caucasus. First of all, I was born in Rostov-on-Don. The city was called uh, the gateway to the Caucasus. It's a metaphor, of course, but uh, in reality, in practice, uh, it was a regular, practically everyday meeting with people from uh, Chechnya and Gushetia, the Soviet time, Chechen and Gushetia, or Kabardino-Balkaria. A lot of excursions were organized at my school. This is why my first trip to Nalchik or Grozny took place earlier than my first visits to Moscow, for example. I visited the first time Grozny and Nalchik at the age of nine, the same with Abkhazia, but my first uh, visit to Moscow was paid at the age of 13. It's also necessary to understand, because uh, many people uh, in the West trying to discuss the consequences of the USSR collapse and so on, ignore uh, those psychological factors, because I'm repeating once again, I was in Abkhazia, that time Soviet Georgia, yeah, and I consider this place like part of my own geography. And the same with Donbass, it's another story, but my first trip to Donetsk was at the age of three. Ten years earlier than my first visit to my capital, Moscow. Uh, of course, uh, when I uh, became a student, uh, we actively cooperated with uh, the North Caucasian Scientific Center. It was one of the leading centers coordinating research 
academical uh, papers and uh, scientific writings and conferences and uh, uh, classes for uh, guests from all republics of the North Caucasus. This is why uh, people from North uh, Caucasian republics were regular guests at our students' conferences and conferences for uh, researchers and so on and so on. My first topic at the university was uh, Cossacks, Don Cossacks. You know about Cossackdom, specific category of the population uh, in Russia. Uh, in the period of Moscow state, uh, Cossacks were uh, free people who were not controlled directly by the state. And at the same time, they ensured uh, security of the uh, Moscow state. It was kind of paradox. Right. Well, also, that whole Rostov-on-Don area, that was part of the Don Cossack host, yes? It's necessary to uh, clarify this thing, uh, because Rostov-on-Don uh, was not originally Cossack uh, city or Cossack town, because, moreover, uh, Rostov-on-Don was a fortress originally. One of the tasks of this fortress was to absorb the Cossacks to deter them from some uh, particularism and so on and so on. Then, uh, when uh, Fortress was uh, transferred to Anapa, it took place in the 19th century. The, uh, this place was developed like a uh, trade center, center of uh, craftsmen, uh, tradesmen, arts, and so on. And uh, then it was called uh, Russia's Chicago. A very intriguing parallel, certainly. I mean, yes, yes, it was kind of metaphor, like uh, Rostov is a gateway to the Caucasus. The uh, other metaphor for the Caucasus in the pre-revolutionary period was uh, Russia's Chicago. And uh, it competed uh, for a long time with Taganrog in the Azov Sea. And only in uh, 1887, Rostov became the part of the Don Cossack host. Only in 1887. Uh, but it's a part of the Don area, and of course, uh, academically, uh, people from Rostov uh, paid a lot of attention to the Cossacks. Novocherkass, capital city of the Don Cossack host, was uh, just properly Cossack. Isn't that where the massacre was during the Khrushchev era in Novocherkass? Yes, uh, area of riots. Maybe not massacre, but uh, riots. Uh, yeah, I think, yeah, the riots. Yeah, riots yeah. of... Uh, Summer uh, 1962, yeah, and uh, it was an interesting city. My uh, grandmother uh, lived in the city and died uh, some years ago, and of course, when I was a small kid, I traveled to her and spent one, two, three months uh, at summer vacations, and the museum of the Don Cossacks was one of my favorite places. I uh, did it dozens of times, and when I became a student, uh, I had uh, practices, student practices in this museum. I collected uh, some uh, writings, papers, sources for my uh, uh, degree, and so on and so on. And when I began studying the uh, history of Cossacks, of course, I touched a lot with uh, Caucasian tribes, because Cossacks uh, confronted and cooperated with Circassians with uh, Crimean Tatars. And you know that uh, some parts of the current uh, Caucasian area were uh, parts of the Crimean Khanate, like territories of contemporary Kubani, Krasnodar area. They belong to the Crimean Khanate also. And uh, a lot of uh, contacts 
were with the uh, guys and so on and so on. This is why through the interest uh, to the Don Cossacks, uh, I discovered a lot of historical facts, interesting things uh, on the um, North Caucasus. When I uh, finished my university education, I uh, uh, simultaneously continued uh, my education as a doctoral student. At the same time, I worked in the Rostov Regional Administration, in the Committee of the Nationalities, and uh, as a, a member of this committee, I traveled to Chechnya, for example, my first trip uh, to Chechnya took place in uh, February 1996 for the first uh, anti-separatist campaign in this republic. I spent then uh, 10 days. And then I uh, spread my uh, activities and I uh, began uh, making more practical things like analytical works, materials on the contemporary situations and so on. So you visited Georgia, you visited the North Caucasus. Did you ever visit Armenia, Azerbaijan, Baku, Yerevan? Did you visit these places as well? Of course, I visited uh, those places a lot, but not in my uh, childhood uh, and uh, not in the period of my student life. It was a little bit later. Uh, I uh, began uh, visiting uh, those uh, republics in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s. And I I visited uh, both Yerevan, Baku, and I also traveled to Nagorno-Karabakh. This is why it... um, became reason uh, of uh, uh, my <laughs> engagement in the Black Sea list. Sorry, <laughs> Black list. No, Black no, 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 you're fine, you're fine. I participated um, in the list, uh, <laughs> on the Black Sea, this is why it's... Excuse <laughs> me, Black list of the Azerbaijani Ministry of um, Foreign Affairs. It's uh, maybe not strange. I, I, I know the uh, very strict approach of the Azerbaijani government, but it's interesting uh, that... I never said about necessity to recognize Nagorno-Karabakh. For me, the resolution of the conflict is more important than status. I tried to keep off some uh, status disputes, but I stressed uh, that people in Nagorno-Karabakh have uh, at least uh, a right uh, and even a necessity to discuss their future life. It doesn't mean I am uh, in favor of recognition or non-recognition. I am repeating once again, it's not the crucial factor. The crucial factor is the right of people living on the ground to understand, to predict their future, to participate in the definition of their future. Because uh, uh, we recognize the right of uh, co-chairs of Minsk Group to discuss the future of Nagorno-Karabakh, to make recommendations. But in my mind, people in the ground is a very important factor. And visiting Abkhazia, my uh, visit, uh, my first visit in Abkhazia was also in the mid of the 90s when this republic was uh, under pressure, not only from the Georgian side, but from the Russian side also. Yeah, and a lot of people actually don't know uh, about that. Absolutely. Know? it's It was the joint blockade, and the joint decision was made in the summit of CIS countries in January 1996. And Russia at that time suspected Abkhaz cause like uh, something similar to, uh, to Chechnya, to the Chechen movement, separatist movement. And Russia is afraid of separatism and so on and so on. This is why the opposition was also tough. Uh, but I saw people living uh, on the ground. At that time, the 
average pension in Abkhazia was about uh, one, two dollars. And uh, maybe people lived like the conditions of uh, medieval times, natural economy, uh, not connected with the uh, world markets, uh, very low standards, and uh, so on, so on. Uh, this is why those uh, visits were very uh, important for me, because uh, since my... Uh, uh, childish experience, uh, it uh, became uh, habitual, usual for me to know a uh, life situation in the regions, not only from books. Yes, uh, education is a mandatory factor as well as reading books, but practical experience, when you can talk with peasants, taxi drivers, or uh, even people engaged in the illegal business, it's, it's, it's also important to understand the situation in the ground also. Well, it's a lot like that saying that's usually attributed to Muhammad. I don't know if he actually said it himself, but this idea that don't tell me uh, how much you've read, tell me where you've been. The idea, of course, that you have to experience these places firsthand. You can't just read about them, you know? Yeah. The, the quality of expert on the Caucasus uh, is a combination of theoretical and practical background. Because um, very frequently we see uh, people who can say about theories of transit and uh, relating to Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, but not knowing details of the uh, everyday lives in those countries. And uh, the other extreme point uh, when people travel a lot but uh, cannot... Uh, how to say, make general overviews, uh, they tend to observe only empirical facts, not connecting each other, and so on, so on. It's necessary to uh, be more or less universal expert. So your wife, is she a scholar of the Caucasus as well? Uh, it's also an interesting story. My wife was originated from Astrakhan. Fiction is not the part of the Caucasus, but historically this part of Russia was also connected with the Caucasus, because first governors who covered Caucasus activities were based in Astrakhan. In the uh, early 18th century, Astrakhan was a gateway of uh, Russia to the Caucasus and uh, Asia in general. There was a lot of ambitious plans of Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, were also realized through Astrakhan. And nowadays, Astrakhan, as well as Rostov, is a um, multi-ethnic city with uh, different communities. And my wife was born there, but in uh, her maternal uh, line, she has uh, some Armenian uh, ancestors. Uh -huh. it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, she uh, can speak Armenian, of course. She uh, visited Armenia first time last year. I was uh, invited for the conference, it's a traditional annual conference of the Education Institute based in Yerevan, and I invited uh, my wife Larissa to, with me, and uh, it was interesting because many people, many Armenians, uh, trying to uh, tell with her, with her in Armenian. Because she looks like an uh, Armenian girl, and uh, this is why she asks, uh, and uh, many people uh, quiet that uh, she uh, doesn't, uh, she, she can't uh, speak uh, Armenian. And they said, you are Armenian, why you don't know our native tongue, and so on, so on. She said, it's not uh, properly Armenian, I have uh, Armenian blood, of course, but <laughs> uh, it, it's also interesting, uh, because... Uh, 
the other important role of her is the support of my research, of course, because without her, my research maybe uh, would not so productive. This is why this this role is also important in my uh, Caucasian studies, and uh, it's it, it's a good pleasure and privilege to to represent her as a supporter of my research and as a good a good assistant to my activities. So, Sergei, you were a young man during the monumental changes of the Gorbachev era in Glesnost and Perestroika. At the time, how did you perceive the conflicts that were beginning to emerge in the Caucasus? Did they have an impact on inter-ethnic relations in Rostov? I'm especially thinking here of Nagorno-Karabakh because there's a significant Armenian community in Rostov, as you know. Uh, So what did you think about all this? Uh, of course, uh, conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh was intensively discussed because, uh, for example, uh, imagine that in my class consisted uh, of uh, 34 persons, six persons were Armenian, and uh, I lived not in the Armenian part of Rostov-on-Don. You know that historically Rostov-on-Don uh, consisted of some parts. Properly Rostov, it was former fortress of Saint uh, Dmitry Rostovsky. Uh, archbishop, a uh, person who was uh, one of uh, good friends and uh, colleagues uh, of Peter the Great, well-known polemist, uh, criticizing uh, old believers and so on. The second part of Rostov was Nahichivan on the Don, or New Nahichivan, or Normichivan in Armenian. It was established in uh, 1779 due to uh, resettlement of those Armenians uh, from Crimea. We uh, received, uh, and uh, the Don uh, area was enriched by very interesting Armenian community. Uh, this community gave birth to uh, distinguished persons. For example, Martiros Saryan, well-known painter, lived in Nahichivan. Uh, Surbhach, it was a church, and the first printed book was done in Surbhach for Saint Cross, translating from Armenian to uh, English. And a lot of other uh, interesting uh, places and persons. Marieta Shaginyan, for example, a biographer of Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, number one in the Soviet Union. She was also in Nahichivan, Nadanu, Nahichivan on the Don. And uh, some other parts of Rostov were former Kozak uh, settlements or Stanitsa, like kind of village of Kozak settlement, like Nizhny Gnilovskaya settlement with Alexandrovka. Uh, named in the honor of uh, Alexander uh, I uh, or Alexander the Blessed, Russian Empire. And uh, um, Armenian community was uh, uh, taking special care on Nagorno-Karabakh. And due to uh, my uh, Armenian uh, friends and colleagues, I got uh, newspapers. For example, uh, when I was a, a schoolboy, at that time I was... Uh, Eighth, eighth former, I got uh, first time a newspaper Sovietsky Karabakh, the Soviet Karabakh, and knew first uh, about conflicts, clashes in Sungait, and uh, then uh, pogroms in Baku in January 1990, and so on. There were some rumors, for example, that maybe Armenians will organize some riots in Rostov on Don. Of course, they were not confirmed. But those rumors also were spread among people uh, who were uh, suspicious that maybe Armenians will organize some uh, problems, uh, will organize protests against uh, authorities uh, who pro-Azerbaijani position, and so on, so on. Uh, 
of course, uh, a lot of people from uh, Karabakh, from Baku, also uh, uh, went uh, to came to to, to Rostov. For example, uh, when I was uh, ninth former, uh, not in my uh, class, but in parallel class, I was uh, classmate of A class. We have uh, we had that time B class, but B class uh, was uh, added by guy from Baku. Till nowadays, I remember his name, Vagan Andriasov, who uh, left uh, Baku after pogroms of 1990, and he finished last year of education at my school with us. This is why I had the uh, experience of uh, contacting people from Karabakh. I uh, read the newspapers, I uh, observed some rumors, uh, not confirmed, uh, of course, but it was also an interesting experience. You used to write for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, but then you eventually left. Now you're a frequent contributor to Russia Direct. What was your time like at RFERL? Maybe you can tell me a bit about this. Okay, it was an interesting experience. Uh, I uh, got an invitation to uh, write columns, special uh, brief uh, observations on the Caucasus in uh, 2000. maybe 2009. Uh, You know that uh, Andrei Babitsky, well-known journalist, worked that time Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and he was editor-in-chief of uh, the Caucasus Echo uh, editorial staff. He invited me uh, in order to have uh, alternative to the uh, conventional, so-called conventional wisdom of the West on Russia, Russian approach to the post-Soviet uh, issues and so on. And he uh, offered me uh, to write regularly uh, brief uh, observations, columns on the situation in the Caucasus. Uh, I uh, accepted this uh, invitation, no censorship, by the way, nobody uh, told me uh, to write this or that. It was uh, absolutely uh, brilliant situation. I did it, but uh, in uh, 2014, just on the eve of Crimean uh, scenario, Crimean annexation, return to the uh, safe haven, as Putin said, yes, it depends on your angle of observation. Uh, I was told about cuts of budget. I suppose, I'm not sure completely, but I suppose that uh, it was a shift from more or less uh, open playground for discussion to strict, tougher position to Russia. And this is why maybe due to uh, the reason of budget cuts, uh, my uh, cooperation with the Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty was stopped. Well, also, Andrei Babitsky, didn't he also have issues with Ukraine? I remember in 2014, he recognized Crimea, and that's why he left Radio Free Europe, right? Yes, yes. but Andrei left uh, Radio a little bit later, uh, just after me, uh, because of his position on Ukraine, yes. Uh, And uh, it was uh, official, uh, how to say, reason for his resignation. It was not uh, explanation through budget cuts or something similar, blah, blah. But uh, as for uh, my personal deal, it was due to uh, budget cuts. As for 
Russia Direct, uh, I just uh, started cooperating with them when I was in the United States. You know that I spent more than three years as a visiting fellow at CSIS, Center for Strategic and International Studies. I worked with the uh, Russia and Eurasia program uh, together with Andy Kachins. Andy invited me initially for eight months, but then my stay was extended sometimes. I covered North Caucasus as well as South Caucasus. Problems of politicized Islam, ethnopolitical conflicts, de facto statehood, and so on. And uh, Russia Direct uh, proposed me to write articles for them in uh, September 2013, just on the eve my uh, leave from United States to uh, my return to Russia. And then I continued to do it, and uh, I also uh, blessed them for absence of uh, any censorship. I have uh, absolutely all opportunities to express my opinion and to write uh, what I uh, want to, to write. And uh, it's good because uh, I uh, treat uh, this project like a good playground to express opinions of Russian observers, uh, uh, maybe to attract attention of our Western colleagues to some problems, because uh, I suppose that the most important uh, mistake of the Western colleagues is identification of the Russian politics, policies with uh, only one personality, Vladimir Putin. It's not true. It's not true. It's a huge mistake because uh, Putin's policies uh, have a lot of succession from Boris Yeltsin times. A lot of commonalities. Yes, differences also, but explained through the lack of resources in the Yeltsin's time and so on and so on. It's necessary to attract uh, opinions uh, and uh, uh, attention of people to more general problems Russia faces now, like problems of uh, uh, energy security, military security, problems of NATO, European security, situation in the post-Soviet space, and so on and so on. All those things uh, require uh, clarification, require clarification. And there's also an internal politics within Putin's inner circle. I mean, within the Kremlin, there is an internal politics, certainly between liberals and Siloviks and this sort of thing, yes. I mean, it's not just Putin making all the decisions. It's also necessary to understand. I'm, I'm not a specialist on the Russian domestic politics, but nevertheless, it's necessary to understand that in many cases, Vladimir Putin plays the role of mediator. It's not dictator like Stalin or like Hitler. It's a mediator between different groups of influence. You mentioned Siloviks or people from FSB or some other special uh, agencies and services and uh, liberals covering mostly uh, economic bloc of the government and so on and so on. And it was a combination of um, decisions. This is why uh, due to uh, Russia Direct, a lot of problems uh, became more clear. I am not so naive believing that uh, all experts or uh, politicians in the West would rely on uh, Russia direct only. Uh, of course, no. But nevertheless, there are a lot of doubted persons or students or doctoral students, for example, who are interested to have more or less objective picture uh, of uh, the situation in Russia, Russian-Western relations, or uh, particularly uh, the South Caucasus or North Caucasus. What do you think now about U.S.-Russian relations? I mean, how do you assess this as being somebody from Russia who certainly understands Russia? You know you've worked in the U.S., you understand Americans. What is your sense of this? I mean, it seems to me as if there's a lot of hysteria 
really about the Russians. What do you think? Yeah, this situation reminds me a well-known song by Steam. In Europe and America, there is growing feeling of hysteria. Yeah, it's absolutely true. The growing feeling of hysteria in Russia, in the United States, uh, on each other. Uh, first of all, uh, let me continue my previous thesis. I uh, suppose that U.S.-Russian relations are not about personal tensions or personal quarrels between two gentlemen, Vladimir Putin, Barack Obama, or uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, Donald Trump, and uh, anybody else. It's uh, about systematic relations, because... Uh, U.S. Uh, began perceiving uh, the post-Cold War situation like a victory. And the dominant narrative in the U.S. that this country, due to its values and uh, uh, political, economic experience, uh, success, uh, this victory was, uh, was, was, was ensured. Uh, but uh, as for Russia... Russians don't consider the post-Cold War era like uh, a loss, like a defeat. Uh, for Russia, uh, the Cold War end is a uh, will of uh, the uh, last Soviet government to uh, stop uh, keeping burden of uh, arms races and uh, uh, demonstration of open-mindedness to the West. Because uh, I suppose that ideas of new thinking were offered not by U.S., but by uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. It's kind of fashion in Russia now to blame Gorbachev for everything. I am not follower of uh, uh, this fashion. In my mind, the idea of new thinking oriented on universal character of international relations, uh, uh, maybe uh, not peddling the uh, class values, uh, no matter are you socialist, communist, or liberal, uh, you are on the same board, as Gorbachev said. And uh, this idea was was interesting. It was about pragmatism. It was, over, was overcoming the class struggle ideas and so on and so on. It was a good chance, by the way. But this chance was not realized. Due to mistakes of Gorbachev, of course, due to some mistakes of the American side, but this chance was lost. And now it's necessary to find more or less pragmatic uh, resolutions. Because, uh, frankly speaking, I talked with a lot of Americans when I stayed there. I uh, said to them, guys, you contacted with Stalin. You contacted with Mao Zedong. Putin is incomparable with Stalin and Mao Zedong. What's about uh, stubbornness uh, in your uh, relations to him and your unreadiness to negotiate with the leader of Russia? Yes, he is one of uh, important actors. You can agree with him, disagree, but Russian reasons should be also taken into the account. Because Russia was not champion, uh, didn't agree with the NATO enlargement, and especially using of NATO like an instrument for the conflict resolution. Let me come back to the Caucasus, for example. The reason of fears of Russia was not NATO properly. Because Russia itself uh, joined uh, the Partnership for Peace project and uh, Russia itself agreed on uh, NATO-Russia accounts. But Russia was against uh, using of NATO like military intelligence uh, instrument to ensure revenge of one side uh, over other side. Uh, because I'm not official. I can say uh, with no problem that Abkhazia is a part of Georgia. But in this way, you should recognize that not whole Georgia is in favor of NATO. In this way, Abkhaz people 
have uh, their own view. If they are of Georgia, we should take into account this voice, their concerns, concerns, and because uh, due to the conflict with uh, Georgia, they believe that Russia is the best guarantor of their security, not NATO. We can laugh about them, we can uh, doubt the effectiveness of their views, but their views exist. Yeah, I totally agree. And you also, similarly, you could say the same thing about South Ossetia. Absolutely. And I would add, too, that another problem with Western, the Western approach toward peace building in the Caucasus generally has been the exclusion of Russia from the peacemaking process. I mean, there's this idea among Western policymakers that there should be a peace between Armenia and Azerbaijan without Russia or a peace between Georgia and Abkhazia and South Ossetia without Russia. Yeah, but I'm not sure it's possible. It's not possible. When it comes down to it, Russia is really the glue that holds all these guys together. I mean, culturally, historically, even linguistically. In the Caucasus, Russian is still very much the lingua franca. It serves as the intermediary language, if you will, between Armenians and Azerbaijanis or between Georgians and Ossetians and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. So to say that Russia has absolutely no role in the peacebuilding process among these peoples is basically blind to the history of the region. And of course, it's not to downplay the Russian imperial past, but still, Russia undeniably plays a major role in the politics of the Caucasus. Yes, yes, I agree completely. So we were just talking about NATO and the different perceptions of NATO in the Caucasus. This brings me, of course, to the 2008 war with Russia and Georgia over South Ossetia. NATO, in many ways, was a factor in that war, and Mikhail Saakashvili who is very pro-NATO and believed he had U.S. support, initiated this war. And I'm curious, have you ever met Mr. Saakashvili? And if you have, what was your impression of him? Yeah, I met uh, with Mikhail Saakashvili uh, sometimes. Uh, the first time uh, we met at 2006. Before it, uh, I, uh, with a group of my colleagues, uh, like uh, Alexei Bogaturov, Vitaly Naumkin, Evgeny Kazokin visited Georgia in 2005. We were engaged in the series of meetings with the highest rank officials of Georgia. Nino Burjanadze, then chairman of uh, Georgian National Parliament. Mr. Zvania, then prime minister of Georgia. Uh, Georgi Baramidze, then minister of defense and so on. But uh, that time we uh, missed uh, an opportunity to meet with Saakashvili. In a year, in 2006, me with uh, some of my uh, colleagues like Anatoly Tsiganok, Alexander Skakov, uh, we met with Saakashvili. Uh, and due to this meeting, uh, I got um, more positive impressions because uh, Saakashvili at that time said about his desire to resolve problems with uh, Russia. He said that uh, Putin, uh, well, sorry, Yeltsin and Shevardnadze had lost a lot of opportunities to promote positive agenda of bilateral relations. And uh, that time uh, he demonstrated his belief in Putin and uh, good uh, opportunities to break negative trends in a relationship. Of course, it was not situation of 2004. I wish to remind you that in 2004, Saakashvili blessed Putin. Putin was valued like one of the most effective state uh, leaders uh, in the world. And Saakashvili was a very popular figure in the Russian TV. He was invited in a lot of programs, and uh, many commentators like uh, and journalists like Andrei Karaulov evaluated uh, his uh, anti-corruption measures like very effective even applicable to the Russian conditions. But 
The situation of conflict in South Ossetia in 2004, when this conflict won and freezed, first time, uh, on the first time uh, since 1990, 1992, since uh, the Dagamis uh, Accords, and uh, these events uh, broke uh, positive trends. But even in 2006, Saakashvili was more or less a uh, supporter of idea to promote positive relations. Uh, then we met in 2007, and at that time he was more critical uh, to Russia, and uh, even uh, he blamed uh, my country, ignoring absolutely uh, reasons of uh, conflicts with Abkhazia and South Ossetia, he began uh, treating uh, conflicts in both uh, regions like uh, Georgian and Russian proxy conflicts even Western Russian proxy conflicts, uh, saying that no problems with Abkhaz people of Ossetia, and uh, in, if in 2006 he had demonstrated his readiness to discuss uh, uh, topical and uh, hot issues, uh, in a year I didn't feel uh, his readiness to be frank. He was more critical, politicized. And uh, last time I met with him when I stayed in the United States, and uh, it was in 2007, uh, 2011. And uh, I apologize for uh, political incorrectness, but uh, he crazy that time, absolutely. He even recommended uh, to the United States to make reforms on American democracy. He advised... Uh, uh, Arab regimes to overcome corruption and uh, authoritarian ruling. He advised to everybody. Uh, he uh, treated uh, Russia like a permanent aggressor, and uh, even American uh, audience was not so happy to see Saakashvili. He was very nervous. He was not constructive. He was uh, like a very bad actor. This is why uh, my impressions, my personal impressions, not impressions of researchers, but personal impressions uh, evolved uh, seriously between 2006 and 2011. Of course, I personally met with uh, guys from his team, for example, Giga Bakeria and uh, David Bakradze and Timuri Kabashvili. Uh, I found David Bakradze is the most constructive among them. As for Timuri Kabashvili, I remembered my uh, meeting with him uh, in April 2008, some months before the Five Days War. Uh, Timuri, I, I knew him as a researcher, as a political analyst, uh, some years uh, uh, before uh, April 2008, and uh, he uh, offered me to use his car, and him, like guide, we traveled to Gori, the birthplace of Stalin, you know, uh, we discussed the situation on uh, areas or in uh, South Ossetia. Uh, when we uh, followed uh, our road from Tbilisi uh, to Gori, we saw a lot of uh, military uh, machines, tanks, uh, armored vehicles, and uh, so on and so on. And I asked a question about South Ossetia and confrontation there. And he told me about cry Serbian crime case repetition. I interrupted him uh, saying, Timuri, do you feel the difference between Russia and Serbia? He said, no, Russian bureaucracy is very lazy uh, and uh, no problems. American will press and uh, enforce Russia to 
be tolerable to our operation. We uh, pro provide very fast operation, maybe for a couple of days, and the world will accept uh, us uh, like uh, uh, did it uh, in 1995. By the way, it's also interesting because um, it's kind of conventional wisdom to discuss the course of a case in the context of the Caucasus, but uh, the other point is uh, overshadowed, uh, unfortunately, but it's necessary to pay attention to this uh, format to a case also. Serbian crime, it's very popular. When I traveled to Georgia and uh, Azerbaijan, uh, before accession to, 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 to the stop list, uh, I heard a lot from different people, researchers, observers, journalists, politicians, that Serbian Ukraine case is, uh, is the best one because uh, sweeping of separatists, uh, cleaning of territory is uh, the best solution. It's interesting because newly independent countries who inherited their territory from Bolsheviks and their territory due to the Bolsheviks' activities value territories, not people living there. But it's indivisible, by the way. People and population on the ground are not uh, divided from the territory. Excuse me, it's understandable. And now we see the confrontation in Donbass, growing confrontation, and uh, many public figures from Ukraine uh, absolutely openly demonstrate the desire to repeat Serbian Ukraine case. And Western diplomats are tolerable to those uh, statements. Yeah, and that's basically sanctioning ethnic cleansing, which is... Quite alarming, to say the least. Yeah, they, they did it in the case of Georgia, and then admired uh, Russian unpredictability. Now they did the same in Ukraine. It's interesting that now Ukrainian case repeats a lot of details of the Georgian one. Maybe, maybe, after Russian recognition of Donbass republics, people in the West would be also admirers or uh, something similar and uh, say about Russian unpredictability, and uh, instability and so, so on, so on, so on. But please, take into the account position of people living there. Separate, or maybe you can label them uh, how you want, but uh, it's necessary to remember that even Israelis provided uh, negotiations with Yasser Arafat, who was also engaged in the terrorist activities, by the way. It's necessary to also remember. Uh, and, uh, of course, Russian factor. Because uh, Georgian Abkhaz conflict was connected with the situation in the Adygian constituencies of Russia. Because 7.5 thousand people from Kabardina, Balkaria, Adygea, Karachay, Cherkessia were engaged in the confrontation with Georgia on the Abkhaz side. A lot of people of Adygian background played a significant role uh, in the uh, Abkhaz uh, de facto state building, like Sultan Sasnaliyev, who died, unfortunately. Uh, some years ago, or some other persons. Our situation in South Ossetia was connected with uh, North Ossetia. And I wish to remind you that in 1992, the government of North Ossetia mm, uh, demanded from uh, Russia to take care of South Ossetia, and even denied to sign the Federal Treaty of 1992, with uh, no uh, taking care on South Ossetia. It's a factor. Russian engagement is not uh, restricted to the uh, Moscow's imperial will or ambitions. Of course, I don't deny ambitions. Yes, they exist, but not only. A lot of interdependence between North Caucasus agenda and South Caucasus situation exist also. Going on kind of the Georgian peace here, 
What do you think of the new Georgian Dream government? Well, actually, it's not really so new anymore, is it? I mean, it's been around for about four years now. But they recently had a major victory with the October 2016 parliamentary elections, and they have expressed uh, their readiness to normalize relations with Russia. Uh, they also have a much more balanced approach, certainly, toward the Abkhaz and South Ossetian conflicts. What do you think? Uh, have they been successful in repairing Russo-Georgian relations so far? How do you assess their performance? Okay, it's interesting question and interesting phenomenon, by the way, because on the one side, uh, Georgian Dream rejected a lot of Saakashvili's initiative, like to uh, support uh, nationalist of the North Caucasus uh, ideas of North uh, Caucasus nations' genocides, because you know that in April 2011, uh, Georgian parliament under Saakashvili recognized uh, the so-called Circassian genocide, uh, but he prepared some drafts on recognition of Chechen or Ingush genocides and so on, so on. Uh, new government of Georgia, respectively new, of course, stopped this activity. They pragmatized relations with Russia. Karasin and Abashidze began their meetings and uh, expressed readiness to discuss economic and social humanitarian issues with uh, no connection with status of Abkhazia and South Asia. Uh, and... Uh, they uh, changed uh, tactical uh, activities because if Saakashvili uh, thought that confrontation with Russia uh, opened the way for him to NATO, Georgian Green government considers that maybe uh, normalization with Russia will open the way to NATO, the fastest way to NATO or at least European Union and so on and so on. Uh, Russia is more tolerable to European aspirations of Georgians uh, and uh, uh, this is why uh, relations between Russia and Georgia were more or less normal, pragmatic, but it doesn't mean we overcame everything, because uh, both governments, Russian and Georgian, are not interested to cross uh, alleged red lines, like status of Abkhazia, South Ossetia, and Georgian uh, pro-Western aspirations. But, uh, in my mind, uh, pragmatization is a valuable thing. We also knew facts of cooperation between uh, even special services on the eve of the Sochi Olympics. And even Vladimir Putin confirmed this fact and uh, some Georgian officials. Pragmatism. Uh, yeah, I see that uh, situation in the Middle East influences seriously on Georgia. I see for my uh, last uh, visits to Georgia breath of the Middle East. Speaking of the Middle East and the Caucasus, what is the relationship between the conflicts of the North Caucasus and Syria? Because this certainly has influenced Russia's view and Russia's involvement in the Syrian conflict. What is the connection between the North Caucasus and Syria? Uh, perhaps you can extrapolate this a bit. Okay, uh, first of all, of course, I am uh, not a supporter of the idea that Russian engagement in Syria is uh, predetermined only by the North Caucasus factor. It's multidimensional, so. On the one side, it's a competition with the U.S. On the other side, it's a, a concern of Russia in security, because the Middle East is uh, so close to post-Soviet space, and uh, such countries like Iran, Turkey are engaged in the processes in Central Asia, and the Caucasus also, by the way, especially. This region is uh, neighboring to the uh, Middle East. A lot of connections between uh, those regions, but uh, of course, uh, the North Caucasus dimension is important. Uh, why? Uh, because uh, one year prior Russian intervention in Syria, the first cells of ISIS appeared in the Caucasus. 
and the uh, ISIS uh, recognize uh, Vilayat or Caucasus. Uh, I would like to remind you that Al-Qaeda or some other terrorist organizations uh, didn't treat Caucasus like their front, because Al-Qaeda considered Iraq and Afghanistan as the two fronts of the uh, pure Muslim fighting against crusaders and Jewish people. The other situation is with uh, ISIS, because ISIS, since the first days of its existence, labeled Caucasus like a potential area of uh, the fighting for pure Islam and so on. Don't forget that a lot of people from the Caucasus were engaged in this uh, activity, like Tarhan Batirashvili, who was killed last uh, summer. He was from Pankisi Gorge from Georgia, but this region is connected with the North Caucasus. And uh, many people of Islamist or jihadist view from the Caucasus uh, play a very active role uh, in uh, the Middle East uh, destabilization. For example, Abu Jihad and some other person. You know that Shishani, Ash Shishani, means people from Chechnya or North Caucasus in general. It looks like the face of Caucasian nationality, you know, the stereotype made in Russian media, and uh, the other point, uh, Circassians. In uh, the Ottoman Empire, all people from the Caucasus are labeled Circassians. Now, jihadists in the Middle East label all people from the North Caucasus like Shishani, Chechens, but nevertheless, yeah? It's a problem of uh, the concern of Russia, and since uh, uh, December 2014, a lot of terrorist attacks were provided under auspices of ISIS. The Caucasus Emirate was practically uh, liquidated on the eve of Sochi Olympics and just afterwards. A lot of uh, key leaders like Doku Umarov, alias Khadkibekov, were killed. Uh, liquidated by Russian special agencies, but now ISIS became, Vilayat Caucasus, like a uh, uh, segment of ISIS, or cell of ISIS, is the dominant terrorist structure inside Russia. This is why this problem of ISIS is not something uh, like uh, ISIS threat for US or Canada, it's a problem of domestic agenda also. This is why, I'm concluding, uh, the North Caucasus dimension is not the only one in the context of Russian intervention to Syria, but it's uh, very important. All right. Well, Sergei, thank you very much for this excellent and informative interview. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed listening to you talk about it, certainly. And I think this adds a more critical dimension to the analysis that we've been receiving on the Caucasus. So thank you very much for this excellent interview. It was a pleasure. For you, for your questions, they were not, not standard. They appeal to my personal experience. It was a pleasure for me. Thank you so much. That was Sergei Markidanov, and this is the Reconsidering Russia podcast. Thank you for listening, and as always, good night and good luck.